Good morning, everyone. What a joy to gather together and participate with what God is doing in your heart. How many of you know God is at work in all of us? Okay, that's pretty weak. Let's try this. How many of you are not perfect yet? You're not perfect yet? Look at your neighbor and see if they got their hand up or not. Come on. Okay, everybody seems joyful, on imperfect mode. That's good. We're all in process. We are all in process. And today we're going to look at that letter to the church in Smyrna. Before we do, I want you to keep in mind a couple of things Pastor David shared two weeks ago and last week as we began the series. Just keep a couple of things in mind. They help, they'll help guide us as we walk through the, the uh, book of Revelation here in chapters 2 and 3 with the seven churches. Number one, Revelation is more about Jesus than end time events. Can anyone say amen to that? All right. It's all about Jesus. Number two, the book of Revelation had real recipients, and the message was helpful to them, and it's helpful to us. How many of you thank God the word is helpful to you and I? Number three, Revelation is more about strength to endure than waiting around to escape our surroundings. Whole movements and, cult, and cults over history have gathered members and set dates and actually climbed up on the roofs of places because God's told some, quote, prophet that Jesus was coming on a... a how, many of you, how many of you do not know? Is there anybody here that does know when Jesus is coming back? Uh, okay, let's make sure there's no heretics in the room. Okay, we're all, we're all on the same page there. Uh, this book is... The, these chapters and these letters to churches are to help us to enjoy the journey and, and have a healthy heart as we walk through the... My, my grandmother used to wave her hanky and lead the song, I'll fly away, oh glory. And, 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 I, and I believe in heaven, and heaven is absolutely a real place. And we talked about getting out of here all the time. But how many of you know we haven't gotten out of here yet? <laughs> and God wants to teach us how to live here now. And then uh, keep this in mind, number four, that Jesus wants to make us aware of his presence in our midst. Not just gathering together. I've heard that. I've been introduced in so many size different churches. Uh, well, there's, not, there's only six of us here today, but bless God, Jesus said in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together, there he is. And I want to like scream at the preacher and say that has nothing to do with uh, him being omnipresent. The whole chapter of Matthew 18 is about how to pray together and the power of united prayer. And Jesus is with me when I'm by myself up a tree stand at six o'clock in the morning, in the dark, in the snow, in the freezing rain, 18 mile an hour wins. How many of you know if you're not with me, he's with me anyway. So that being said, Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. Just look at this. Revelation 2 verse 8. Now as since pastor said this, I'm going to say it as well. Uh, I'm going to put on a, just a, a little bit of a professor teacher hat for five minutes and then we'll switch to the pastoral role and see the application and the takeaway. But I want to give you the foundation, the background, the context of this Smyrna church. In verse 8, listen to the scripture here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, Jesus here speaking to John, write these words. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And aren't you thankful for these encouraging words today? Isn't that awesome? 
Some of you could be thrown into prison today. That you may be tested. Oh, doesn't that make you warm and fuzzy and feel good? You're going to go to prison, maybe tested. Uh, Ten days have tribulation. Oh, doesn't that excite you? Tribulation. Mm, bring it on, G. Oh, sure, sure. Even if your bill's lost, as pastor was out of the spirit there talking about, I was rooting for the bills, but it's okay, it's okay. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of what? Life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So here's the setting of the, of the text. If you're online here, uh, jumping in on the series, it's, it's very, very clear. Jesus reveals himself to the last living apostle on a prison island in the Mediterranean. John has given a revelation, the revelation of Jesus on Patmos, where he was sent to die for simply preaching the gospel. John was the product of persecution. He's given seven letters to give the seven churches in Asia Minor for all the people. The first letter was to the church in Ephesus, where Pastor covered uh, last week. Our letter, the second letter, is to the church in Smyrna. Why did Jesus send the letter to the church in Smyrna? Because the church in Smyrna needed to hear some very important things to have courage in living forward. Smyrna was located, a city located 35 miles north of Ephesus. It was a large commercial center filled with pagan temples. The city still exists today. The name was changed several years ago. It's now called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, Izmir in modern Turkey. It's Turkey's third, third largest city, predominantly Muslim. It's an international port city on the water. It's known today for its landmarks, its culture, its cuisine, open-air museum, clock tower, four million people, half of which are under the age of 30. It's famous for, get this, fresh vegetables, fresh seafood, tarhana soup made with sun-dried tomatoes, no mention of buffalo wings and pizza. <laughs> but what about the church in Smyrna? Many scholars believe Paul founded the church on his third missionary journey. In Acts 19, verse 9, the scripture says, Paul held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that the people throughout Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So the church in Smyrna was born. Today there are 250 Coptic Christian churches in Smyrna, Izmir, modern Turkey. The word Coptic comes from the Greek word meaning Egyptians. It describes a person originally from Egypt. So why did Jesus write to the early church in Smyrna? Because he had a message for them. He's got a message for us. He begins by saying Jesus is the first and last, was dead and is alive again. And in this letter, Jesus gives really two major things. He gives a commendation. He wants you to know something, how he knows what you're, what you're going through and where you're at in life. But then he also gives some counsel. He gives some counsel in response to the combination and uh, everyday life. How many of you know Jesus can counsel us better than Dr. Phil? All due respect. He's got something to say. But before he gives the combination and the counsel, he says two things to John. Now get, get these. He says two things. First of all, he says, I'm the first and the last. Now, why did he say something? It has very specific meaning that God wants us to understand. Government officials thought they had the final authority and the last say over the lives of the believers they were persecuting in Smyrna. But Jesus comes along and he tells John right up front, John, here's what he says. He tells us, 
He tells them and he tells us that he has the final say and everything has to go through him. Rome's not in charge. The pagan emperor is not in charge. But Jesus wanted John and the church to know that he is in charge. Can you say this with me? Jesus is still in charge. In other words, he has all authority over those who are in authority over you. He still works all things together for his glory, his, his ultimate good, and no matter what you go through, he wants the church to know Jesus will be present. His presence will be with you in every circumstance of the journey. So first of all, he's first and he's last. Second of all, before he gives us the commendation and the counsel, the scripture says Jesus said he was dead and now he's what? He's alive again. Now, the Greek word for, uh, for was dead and was dead, the word was, is genomenos, and the word means became dead. Jesus became dead. It means his death was only a passing phase. It was an episode. It was a season. It was, he had to pass through. It was an episode. He had to pass through. He died, but death was only a passing thing for Jesus. And get this, the word alive is, the, is in the aorist tense of the Greek, which means a once and for all act. It means Jesus arose, came to life again, will never be crucified again, and will live forevermore. How many of you thank God Jesus will actually live forevermore? Evermore. Now, how does this encourage the Smyrna church and every believer here today? Well, it's pretty simple. No matter what you go through, what you experience, it's a passing episode. And no matter what you pass through, it's only a temporary season. So God's trying to tell us something. If Jesus conquered and just passed through death, which is the toughest battle, those who belong to Jesus will get through whatever they go through and whatever you and I experience, those lesser battles in this life. You see, there's, there's two ways to get courage today. Uh, there's a false way, and I've been in enough of those meetings in 45 years where somebody would come up here which, uh, and, and stand here and scream and holler and quote from Joshua 1, you know, be encouraged, be encouraged, be encouraged. And that's all well and do, screaming, telling stories for 45 minutes. And be encouraged, be encouraged. And that would maybe stimulate you emotionally. But I need something to base my courage on because if I don't have that, when my feeling of being up and courageous is gone, I need something to walk out on Monday when I need courage. And to the church in Smyrna, little dilly daddy's quotes and stories and funniness was not going to help the believers in Smyrna. So Jesus looks out of heaven. He looks at the believers. He sees all of them in all seven churches in Asia Minor. He sees Trinity Assembly of God today. Back then, he could look ahead and he's got something to say to us. And here it is. In Hebrews 7.16, the scripture says, Christ arose by the power of an endless life. What does that mean? It means the, his body died, but God did not die when Jesus was crucified. He's a living Jesus. He walks with us now. So how does this, how does this speak to Smyrna and to us? Well, it's pretty simple. And here's the two parts. And then I'll keep in mind uh, uh, King Henry VIII, right? He had six wives. Remember, uh, uh, he's, as, as King Henry said to each of his six wives, I won't keep you too long. I won't keep you too long this morning. In verse 9, here's how Jesus starts. Two words, I know. Can you say I know? Oh, I'm sorry. 
We should say, he knows. Like, can you say, he knows? <laughs> he knows, yeah. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, hmm, but you are rich. Poverty, but rich. Well, which one is it? Is there a schizophrenic here? What's going on? I know your poverty, yet you're rich. And I also know the slander. I know. Here's what he's saying. He's acquainted with you and knows everything there is to know about you and me. What does the Lord commend in these Smyrna believers? In Ephesus, he talked to them about their first love, and, and, he, tell, and he reminded them that he noticed that, uh, therefore, things that he no, really noticed about them as well. Their servanthood, their patience, their convictions, and their discernment. But now in Smyrna, Jesus says three things arrest his attention. What are they? Number one, when you bear up under personal affliction. Verse 9, I know your tribulation. The word tribulation means affliction. It refers to severe persecution. Why were Smyrna believers afflicted by the Roman government? Because they refused to worship anyone else but Jesus. What did it cost to be a Christian in Smyrna? Many cases you lost your job, your social life in the city was severed, abuse and scorn followed your footsteps, there was a loss of property, you faced imprisonment, and you could easily be martyred. In fact, the word Smyrna, the church in Smyrna, the place of Smyrna, comes from Means a Greek comes from a Greek word that means bitter. It received its name from the chief commercial product, which was myrrh. Myrrh was a gum-like substance taken from a shrub. It was very bitter. It was used for making perfume. Today we have other perfumes. Uh, Clinique, I don't know. Je m'attelez-vous, s'il vous plaît. I don't know. I don't know. I just know when I walk through that part of the store, I always get out of there quickly because there are so many. And I used to have these spray fights when Robbie was little. We, we used to go to the mall in and, and, uh, Buffalo, and, and we would go in there, and, and they have samples. You know, I, we loved the samples, and Robbie would get the sample, and he'd spray me. And then I would get him, and I'd spray him back, and then he'd spray me. We just got covered. Those were the day. Oh, they were great days off in the mall. Laura was shopping with, you know, with Bethany. And, and me and Robbie, we're spraying. And we walked down the mall, actually the Galleria Mall in, Wolf, in Buffalo one, one day. And we walked by these three elderly ladies. And, and, one of the, and as we walked by, one of the ladies said to the other lady, like I wasn't there or, or had no hearing. She said, mm, something really stinks. And, and Robbie goes, hey, Dad, they're talking about you. Yeah, so, 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 so there's a, the, the myrrh, you get the point. Myrrh was used for perfume. But myrrh had to be crushed to become useful. And Smyrna was experiencing what, what its name said, crushing, affliction, persecution. And why were they being afflicted? Here's why. Because believers opposed emperor worship. Caesar Domitian was a murderous dictator of the church. He conducted bloodbaths in Smyrna. Secondly, believers were up against pagan idolatry, temples, festivals, and goddesses. Temples were dedicated Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine who supposedly delivered people from the madness and stress of this present world through intoxication. And thirdly, believers faced the wrath of many Jews. The Jews that rejected their Messiah were influential in Smyrna and city, city politics. They, they reacted severely to other Jews who were getting saved and they tried to squash out the church. And Paul said in Romans 2.28... Not all Jews are real Jews. What's that mean? That means there were biological descendants of Abraham, but they were certainly not 
Abraham's children in the faith. And there was a whole group of these in the city of Smyrna. And God, and God looks out of heaven, and, and Jesus says this. I know your personal affliction. Every struggle, every challenge, every anxiety, every what if. I see your suffering, and I want you to know something. And you've heard me say it before, possibly. If not, I'll say it again. Jesus didn't suffer so that Christians wouldn't have to. He suffered to show us how to go through it. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And Jesus looks out of heaven and says, I know. Then Jesus knows, number two, when you bear up under personal loss. He said in verse 9, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So which one is it? Who is rich? Who is poor? What is real wealth in the kingdom? 1923, maybe you've seen the story. You Google rich men or rich man's meeting back in the 20s, and it pops up every time. 1923, the eight richest men in America met at the Edgewater Hotel in Chicago. One was the president of a steel company. One was the president of Wall Street. One was in President Harding's cabinet, and he was the head of something. And, there were, and these eight men owned more, had more wealth than the, than the entire U.S. Treasury. And the subtitle is, uh, What is Success? And there were articles printed when they, after they met about how successful and how great. And thousands of people got in line to learn from them on how to be really wealthy. 25 years later in 1948, you know where all the eight men were? One committed suicide, another committed suicide, the third one committed suicide, another, the other two more died broke, two more went to prison, and the other one uh, fell off. It, just, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a horrible ending for, but they were lifted up as America's heroes. How to be wealthy. Jesus looks at the church, he looks at your heart and mine, and this is what he says. I see your poverty, but you are rich. And the word poverty means destitute and beggarly, not having a lot because your resources are low. And Smyrna believers were extremely low in resource, yet Jesus looks out of heaven and says, you are what? You are rich. In other words, Rome passed a law, Rome passed a law that required every citizen to be loyal to the state above all else. Citizens were required to proclaim their loyalty once a year publicly. You were required to appear before local government officials. Make the statement, Caesar is Lord. You were then required to burn incense to Caesar and receive a certificate to confirm your loyalty to the dictator and to Rome. And why were believers suffering loss? One reason. Because they chose to be poor in the natural, in personal goods, but rich towards God for eternal treasure. Believers in Smyrna had two choices, same as you and me. Take the easy way out and avoid their cross or deny themselves and embrace their cross. Be rich in the short term or rich in the long term? Suffer loss in the temporary or loss in the forever? Live for what we leave behind or li live for what we go to in the future? 
Live as a consumer Christian or live as a contributing Christian? Face the future with anxiety or face the future with courage? What is Jesus saying? He's saying our wealth, what we think is wealth, may really not be wealth at all. So when Jesus says you are rich, you are rich if you live for me. You are rich if you live for me. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. When you realize how rich you are and how wealthy you really are, it destroys all envy of other people. The biblical definition for envy is this. Envy is the pain you feel when someone else has something that you want. Envy is the pain we feel when someone else has something that you want. And when Jesus says you are rich and you get that, that overcomes you wishing you had what someone else has. This text crucifies our looking on Facebook to see who you think has it better off than you do. Mm. So somebody posts on Facebook, and there's nothing wrong with this, but I see it all the time. I have friends, a couple, and they post, look at my new car today. And I look at that new car. Hmm. Hmm. What do I think? Hmm. I think two things. A, that car should be in my driveway. <laughs> or B, thank you, God, for blessing them. I hope they enjoy it. Now, all of you are in the second group, right? Right, right? Hmm? Right, right? Right, right, right? Hmm? You are rich. Understanding this text, you are, and if you want to know how wealthy you really are, just go home and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You'll discover your real inheritance. It will help you overcome the if onlys. If only. If only I had that, I'd be happy. If only I was taller. If only I was shorter. If only I was bigger. If only I was smaller. If only I had that job instead of this job. If only, if only, if, if only my kids were closer, I'd be happy. If only my kids were further, I'd be happy. If only, if only I had a new car. If only I had my old car back. If only I had a new job. If only I had my old job back. If only my boss was nicer. If only, if only, if only. You know what destroys the if only? Understanding how rich you really are in Jesus. How many of you thank God God has, has enough grace to help you and I be content in every season with where we're at and be grateful all the days of our life? How many of you believe the grace of God is enough to help you and I be grateful and rejoice with other people that do rejoice and envy nothing that anybody else has on planet Earth? How many of you think God's grace is so amazing, big enough to do that inside of all of our hearts? Do you believe that? you believe God, God can actually do that? And then Jesus says, when you bear up under personal slander, he knows. Look at verse 9. I know the blasphemy, the blasphemy of those who are Jews and are not, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. The word blasphemy means slander. It means to ridicule, ridicule, lie, accuse, discredit, tear down, criticize, spread rumors, murmur, and speak evil about. The slander here came from the Jews in the city. They used their tongues to stir up trouble and turn people against believers. Two questions. Have you ever slandered someone else? Have you ever had to catch yourself talking about someone else behind their back? 
Gossip is saying behind someone's back what you'd never say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. Gossip and flattery. Have you ever talked about anyone else behind their back? Question number two. Has anyone ever done that to you? How many of you think we probably all have been in both categories at one time or another in our life? Anybody here ever has a negative word about somebody? And so Jesus looks out of heaven and he says to the church, I know those who slander. And Jesus wants to help all of us here to respond the right way because if, if God, by his grace, can help us to overcome the God of approval and validation from other people, uh, we, we don't have to take it personal and react and respond the wrong way. Here's my, I, I have these, I've carried these for years that have really helped me when someone wants to speak evil or uh, thinks they have the liberty to do that. And I, I remember a Sunday school picnic once in Niagara Falls. I, I was playing checkers. And when I'm playing checkers, I don't mess with other people. I, I'm very intense. Golf and puzzles are of the devil. They give me stress. <laughs> checkers brings the life and competition out of me like no one else. I'll, I'll, play, I'll play anybody here for, in checkers uh, for $1,000, and we can give the proceeds to Trinity Assembly of God, so it won't be gambling. It's a win-win. Uh, you won't keep it. I won't keep it. Uh, I've lost two times in playing checkers, two times in the last 45 years. Two people. My grandfather was a checker champion in Virginia. I live with him. He taught me how to play checkers. Keep these in mind when someone wants to talk about you. Answer your critics with your life instead of your words. Refuse to strike the second blow. Let God defend what's worth defending. Give people what they need, not what they deserve. And learn to practice the principle of delayed response. And when you see someone else that's out of order or out of line or hurtful, or spiteful, always keep this in mind. This really helps me. This helps me to, be, to have courage, and, uh, and this, this really helps me. Keep this in mind. Every misbehavior of another is the revelation of a deeper need and an unspoken request for prayer. So when somebody rolls their window down because you go up here and turn early or late, and you're, there's, you're slowing them down in the process of their journey, and they put their, and, oh, no, we don't whine anymore. We push the button, we whine. We can get our window down quick now to tell them what we think. <laughs> and when that happens and they swear at you and call you a nasty thing, this will help you. It helps me not to respond like them. Why? Because every misbehavior of another is a revelation of a deeper need and an unspoken request for prayer. And whenever you're offended, instead of carrying it, remember this. If I focus on my hurts and feelings, I'll continue to suffer. But if I focus on the lesson and the grace of God, I'll, I'll continue to grow. It's my choice. As Robert, uh, Reverend Robert Madu once said, the level of your maturity is often determined by your level of offendability. The level of your maturity is often determined by your level of offendability. Here's my discovery. Offense is an event, but living offended is a decision to replay that event over and over and over again. 
If you've been hurt or wounded by someone or slandered by someone, remember, you can't start the next chapter of your life until you stop rereading and rewinding the last chapter of your life. As Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, quit looking over your shoulder because that's not where you're going. So take courage. Jesus knows any loss, any affliction, or any slander. Now the last five minutes, I'll give you the counsel that he gives. Are you ready for his counsel? Look at it. In verse 10, Jesus says to you, to them, to us today, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. What does Jesus say to them and say to us? Here's what he says. Instead of fear, take courage. Instead of fear, take courage. Fear none of the things that you may suffer. How can you not fear when facing unknown or some pain or some loss? We remind ourselves he's the first and the last. We remind ourselves he was dead and is alive and his presence is with us. What, are you afraid of anything today at all? The top 12 fears of Americans. Are you ready? You want to know what they are? Heights, flying, spiders, snakes, needles, mice, dogs, the dentist. That's a bad thing if you're a dentist you're in a category with a dog. That's, that's terrible. A disease, the dark, public speaking, thunder and lightning. You know, you know when you go through a fearful event, it probably reveals what you're really trusting in, who you're leaning on. You know three weeks ago what happened to us at our home? At 2.30 in the morning, every alarm in our house went off on the security system. 2.30. I know what that means at my house. It means one of the windows had been opened or one of the three doors has been opened. It was screaming loud. I didn't know the whole system was tied together electronically, and it was screaming loud. We jumped. I said to Pastor Uni, I said, honey, you need to get to the kitchen. They're out there. Go to the kitchen. Check it out. Protect the man of God. Come on. <laughs> I know what to do. I wasn't born last night. Honey, go. Check. Check. Take the baseball back. Check. She went out. I went out right behind her. <laughs> 2.30 in the morning. It's screaming. Five minutes later, there's a fire truck in our driveway. That guy's knocking on the door. I don't know if he's got an axe or if he's breaking in or what. I open the garage. There he's standing. Thing is blaring. Five minutes later, the pumper truck comes, pulling in our driveway. Three guys, fully garbed, hats, axe. They're ready to just to rip through. They find the fire, save the people. That's us. They're going through the house. They, the guy can't, sh we can't shut it off. ADT, fire department. None of us can shut it off. It's screaming loud. And you know what I was doing? I began to get a little fearful because I know that guy's in here somewhere. I checked every closet. I checked, I checked, I checked everything. I checked under the bed. I checked everything. And all of a sudden, I'm getting anxious and I'm getting fearful because the firemen, does, they don't have any weapons. They just have their clothes on and their hats and their axe or two or three. So one of the firemen goes downstairs and he, he rips, the, uh, he rips the, the head of the fire, wall, fire alarm off the wall because he can't get it open. And he, hears the, he said, it's, it's beeping. What? So he, he carries it. He rips it off the, and he carries it and brings it up to me. And he says, uh, do you have a battery? <laughs> you got to be kidding. He said, yeah, take that battery out and see when it expires. Um, so I pulled it out, and it said uh, it's expired 2014. 
Now, ever since I moved into the house, I've been hearing something beep in the basement. But I kept telling myself, oh, it'll go away. It'll go away. You can go, you can go, I know what you're thinking. You can go ahead and say it if you want. Oh, how stupid can you be, preacher? And he said, uh, get a battery. I said, well, we, ch we, ch we checked everywhere. We, we normally have them. We were out of batteries. I said, well, I'll go to Walmart. And maybe they're open. It's 2.30. And uh, he said, hey, Joe, check the truck. We need a battery. Like, 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 like anybody would really for forget to change and ignore a beeping battery for three years. So I put a battery in. And all was well. Not that one. I had to tear that one down. But the others. He looked at me and he. And he, he looked at me with this look like, yeah, are you real? Thank you. <laughs> David Wilkerson once said, a person's spirituality is revealed by the degree of peace they have in a storm. Instead of fear, take counsel. Two more things. Instead of panic, maintain perspective. Look at this. Get this. Whatever you do, get this before you leave. For 10 days, Jesus said, you'll have tribulation. Scholars believe the words 10 days refers to a brevity of time, not a literal 10 days, but only a what? Only a season. You know what Jesus is telling us here? Every season has a beginning and an ending. How many of you thank God every season has a beginning and every season has an ending? Number two, every season is orchestrated by the same faithful God and sovereign God. How many of you think God is sovereign, always sovereign, always has been, always will be over you? And number three, every season, in every season, God's grace will be sufficient for you. He's telling, what's he trying to, he's trying to tell us today? Maintain perspective instead of panic. Maintain perspective. My son said to me four, day, uh, four years ago, my, I was uh, crying in my room one night and uh, going through a season of grief and loss and learning that gr uh, grief is not an event. Grief is a process. And my son knocks on the door and he said, Dad, I hear you've been talking about me moving and leaving your job. He goes, Dad, I, I just got one thing to tell you. And my son says to me, I wrote it down and it's never left me. Robbie said, I go right. He said, Dad, I want to tell you something. I think God wants you to know something. A year from now, you will feel different than you do today. So don't make any, main any big decisions until the dust settles. You know what Robbie was saying? Maintain perspective. And the last thing Jesus counsels is this. Instead of complain, you can live grateful. Not just because he says, be faithful unto death and you'll receive a crown of life, future reward, and eternal life. But he's saying here, God will give you the grace to live grateful. How many of you want to live grateful? And you know why, what's so important about that, that, that principle truth? It's after Revelation was written, Polycarp assumed the office of bishop in the church of Smyrna. He pastored the Smyrna church for many years. He died a martyr's death at the age of 86 in 155 A.D. When he was demanded by the judges to deny his faith and recant his testimony, here's what the pastor of the Smyrna church said. Are you ready? It's been recorded in history. Here's what he said. Four score and six years, that's 86, have I served the Lord, and he never wronged me once. How? Then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? He then said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. 
but you are ignorant of the coming fire of judgment. Polycarp, you know how he could say that? And they burned him alive while he worshiped God. You know how he could say that? He was so grateful for how the gospel had changed his heart. Jesus was so centered in his heart that he looked at them and he said, go ahead, do what you must do. I'll not turn my back on Jesus. Why? Because he knew that he knew that he knew that God would give him grace to burn like ashes while worshiping God. Now, if God can give grace to Polycarp, how many of you know God can give grace to us? None of us will probably suffer martyrdom in this free country, but God will give you grace in every season. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer? Every head is bowed, every eye closed, just for a moment. How does the Lord give us a courageous spirit? The Smyrna believers and believers at Trinity Assembly today. Number one, he promises to be with you in every affliction, every loss, even slander. Number two, he reminds us that we never have to fear in any season because he oversees every season and he is present in every season. And number three, he assures us of the crown or reward that awaits for those who remain faithful. So if you need grace to endure something right now in your life that's uncomfortable or painful, if you need courage to bear up under or stand firm in a season of spiritual battle, where there's a personal cross that you are, you are being allowed to carry and you need God to strengthen you in this season, God wants to do that this morning. God wants to give you strength by His grace, by His Spirit, to stand strong and to be strong. He's the first and the last. He knows everything. His presence is greater than what you face. Father, I pray today for every man and woman. Every man and woman in this place and online that's listening. I pray, God, that your grace would so overwhelm us and you'll cover us like a blanket with the anointing and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Remind us often, remind us today that you are with us, that you know, and if you know, then everybody else doesn't have to know, that you are enough and that you are mindful of us. You are mindful and you're acquainted with all our ways. Pour out, God, great grace in every heart that's here today, I pray. In the strong name of Jesus.